message, you can go back with Pastors Justin and Kristen. Have fun, ask good questions about Jesus. Joey already, uh, well, we have an announcement back here. What's up? Oh, okay. So gals, two events. Number one is the gals regular meeting, which is the 18th, 7 p.m. here at the chapel. Okay, and then the next women's service is April 30th, which is a Sunday. Sunday night here at the chapel. What time? At 6 p.m. Sunday, 6 p.m. If you have any questions, talk to Lucy, Sarah, Kristen. They will be glad to help you ladies with um, that service. I'm getting a lot of requests from the ladies about a hiking trip. Um, And when I say a lot, I think I've gotten two. Um, But that's a lot. So ladies, discuss that. Men, we're having a hike this Friday. If you want to come with us, we're starting off at Mount Hope on Friday morning. Uh, We're going to stay overnight. We're going to eat bad food. And, well, it probably won't be the, no, no, I don't mean bad, like, bad for you food, I mean. I, I don't mean, like, it'll be good tasting, because it'll be bad for you. Oh, really? I'm not going to eat Taco Bell before I hike. That's just a recipe for disaster. My goodness. <laughs> All right. Exactly. That, that's where I was going with that, Mike. Thank you. Um, but men, if you want to join us, you're all welcome. Um, we will just be, it'll be a leisurely type thing. It won't be real crazy. Uh, if you want to, now let us know if you're coming because we plan sort of a communal dinner where we all bring ingredients. We want to make sure there's enough food for everybody. And Mark has graciously invited us to have breakfast with him on Saturday morning. And he needs to know how many uh, men to cook for. So uh, let us know. You're welcome. There's no restrictions, no limitations. Uh, you just got to be a guy. Yeah, you can just camp. You don't even have to hike. It's just like sleeping outside. It is a hoot. All right, that being said, kids are back there. Open your Bibles to John chapter 19. Oh, when's men's breakfast? Okay. Dan's running. Wow, all right, so Dan is running men's breakfast this month. Who knew? Uh, we're going to be at the Hamlet in Chittenango on April the 29th at 9 a.m. Be there and uh, eat food. Okay. That being said, John chapter 19. Verse, oh, we'll start in verse 28. I'm on the wrong page. Here we go. After this, knowing that excuse me, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst A jar full of sour wine stood there so that they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You know, um, a lot leads up to that moment. Um, That night was filled with tribulation. Let's just put that. That's the most mild way I can put it. That night for Jesus probably the worst earthly night uh, he'd experienced as a human. Um, it started off with a meal with his friends, the 12 disciples. They were ha- celebrating the Passover meal. They were celebrating the tradition of the Jews that they had celebrated since the days of, of Egypt um, and the great deliverance that God uh, exacted there. During that dinner, Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus. He left. Bible says he was filled with Satan says that he went out to go betray Jesus. So, so it starts off really bad already. After enjoying the meal, after singing some hymns and, 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 and leaving there, Jesus goes off into the wilderness where Judas comes back with an arresting army, kissing Jesus on the cheek, identifying him as Jesus of Nazareth, resulting in Jesus' arrest. He's taken before the Pharisees in the Sanhedrin where he's falsely accused. Um... Well, I take that back. He was being accused of putting himself on par with God, which is exactly what he did because that's exactly who he is. But inconsistent testimonies kept, everybody kept contradicting one another because people were standing up who knew nothing about anything to just falsely accuse him. They had been plotting for weeks, months, if not years on how to trap Jesus because he kept saying that he was the son of God. He kept putting himself on the same level as God the Father, Jehovah God, Yahweh, the one who had done such great things for the Jewish people. 
ultimately it culminates with Jesus saying, I am as you say that I am. I, I am the son of God essentially. And they, and they say, what more evidence do we need? They start slapping him in the face. They start spitting in his face. They take him before Pontius Pilate to, to have him crucified because they themselves aren't gonna take a man's life, not on the Passover. They wanna, they wanna put the blame on Rome, on, on, on Pontius and on, on the, the Roman Empire. Well, Pontius tries him and can't find anything wrong with him. Can't find anything that he's done to break Roman law. Sure, he's broken Jewish law, but Pontius doesn't care about that. Has him flogged and beaten. The Bible says in Isaiah 53 that Jesus was, uh, he was, he was, he was bruised for our iniquities. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was, he was beaten and tormented because of our sin. The punishment being exacted by human hands was the punishment that we deserved. After that, he's taken and Pontius gives the people a choice. I'm gonna release one person. It was his tradition every year to release one person back into the general populace. One person that the people wanted and so he presented Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God, and a man named Barabbas, which ironically means son of the father. And they screamed and they shouted for Barabbas' life and they shouted, crucify Jesus. The same crowd that just a week prior was screaming, Hosanna. The same crowd that Jesus said, if they were quiet, the stones would scream out. They, instead of now screaming, Hosanna, were screaming, crucify him. And so he's taken, crown of thorns is put on his head. Uh, Roman soldiers begin mocking him. They put a, a, a robe on his back. And as it heals to his back, I mean, have you ever had a wound that heals to something and you, and you have to take it off and it reopens that wound? Well, they do that and they rip it off his back again. Again, spinning in his face, just, just tormenting him. They take him and they falsely bow to him. You know, they just mock him the whole way. And then they, they cause him to carry his cross up this hill called Golgotha, the hill of the skull. Along the way, a man named Simon of Cyrene, they, they, they draft him to help Jesus carry that cross up the hill. He wants nothing to do with Jesus. He's like, let it be known that I have nothing to do with this. They get up there and that's where the nails go through his hands and the nails go through his feet. Again, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was wounded for our iniquities. Crucifixion essentially is a death by asphyxiation or death by suffocation. It, it causes your whole body weight to pull upon your chest cavity which causes your lungs to not be able to expand. And the only way to get any more air into your lungs is by pushing up on the nails in your feet or the nails in your hands. It truly is a gruesome way to die. And the Romans, they specialized in that. Today, our, our word for excruciating pain, it comes from that Greek word uh, uh, for the cross. When Jesus dies, the Bible says that it was this cataclysmic event. It, it caused the earth to shake. The sun went dark. Graves opened up. People came back to life. The, ver the very essence of Jesus' life escaping him caused other life to come up. It's, it's one of the, 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 the most amazing accounts of all of the Bible. The Bible says this was witnessed by multitudes of people. Within within a generation of time, these people wrote these things down, remembering and, and having stories that, that didn't contradict each other, but they correlated, they, they corroborated with one another. They, 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 they were like different people seeing the same thing from different perspectives. They saw different things, but they didn't contradict one another. They lined up with each other. Jesus says, it is finished. And he gave up his life, gave up his spirit. And for three days, he was in the grave. Bible says he went to a place called Sheol where he preached to the saints there who had died in faith, believing or hoping for the Messiah. And then that Sunday morning, that first Sunday morning, the ladies, they went down to the grave, the tomb that Jesus had been buried in. And when they got there, the stone was gone. Now, I forgot to tell you about the stone. The stone was huge. It wasn't like, you know, a little boulder. It was this big, round, circular thing that wasn't only placed in front of the tomb. It was placed in such a way so that there was like a well, meaning once it rolled in there, you couldn't just roll it back out. You could just roll it from side to side. It, all of its weight would go down into this little crevice. And then it was sealed 
with the official governmental seal so if anybody broke that seal, they would know that the, the body had been stolen, someone had tampered with it, and Roman soldiers were placed to guard the body because this, the, this, uh, what people had suspected was that the disciples would come back, steal the body, and say, oh, look, Jesus came back to life. Well, where is he? Oh, he's busy right now, but rest assured, he came back to life. And so they tried to set up all these different things to, to, to counter that claim or that, that proclamation if that should happen. But the lady showed up. The stone was rolled away. The Bible says that there were angels there. And they spoke to the ladies. They spoke to the people who showed up and said, why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? And some of the most famous words of all the Bible, they say, he is not here, he is risen. And some of you like me probably balk at that. He is risen? That's not, he has risen. You don't say it like that. Here's the thing. It's not just that he has, that's past tense. The reason why we say he is risen is because that is the state that he is currently in always. He is, he is risen indeed. He is risen forever. Life will no longer escape his body like it did on the cross. He will never die or taste death again. Joey got me off in the corner during worship. I don't know if you guys saw that. So Tony, I have a question. I said, okay, shoot. Number one, I never, anybody who comes to me with a question, I never turn them away. I might say, I don't know. I might say that's above my pay grade. I don't know. Any, <laughs> I'm not smart enough to answer that question, but I will give you my ear for any length of time, even during worship, especially for the kids because they have some of the best questions. And Joey's question was amazing. He said, Pastor Tony, Jesus rose from the grave, right? And he was, the tomb was empty, right? I said, yeah, that's right. Well, how come that doesn't happen to us? I said, oh, that's a good question, Joey. I said, the Bible tells us that is going to happen to us. It hasn't happened yet, but it will. The Bible tells us that one day Jesus returns and he takes us back into himself. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. I was so, I was so like, oh, Holy Spirit, because Joey asked me the question that we were gonna preach about today. And I was struggling all night. Lord, what do I preach on? Like I literally went to sleep not knowing what we were gonna preach about today. Oh, I had a rough outline and things like that. And it was good points. And we'd go home thinking we got our money's worth. But it, it, I didn't know if that was the message God wanted me to preach on until Joey asked me that question. And so Joey, not knowing, was an instrument of the Lord this morning, an instrument of the Holy Spirit. To talk so that we might talk a little bit about what Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection means to us today. Turn to John chapter 14, verse 1. If you've been in church for a while, these are pretty famous uh, accounts, pretty famous verses that get shared quite often. And I don't want you to check out, like, oh, I've heard this before. Do your best to never allow yourself to get into autopilot on a Sunday morning. There's lots of things we're going to say that might be repetitive in one sense, but if we allow that to sort of lull us into a, a, into a stupor, we'll miss the message. So tr every, every Sunday, every time you read the Bible, pray that the Lord would open your eyes to it. That wouldn't just be a, a moment of exercise, but it would be a moment of revelation as well. John chapter 14 says, let not your hearts be troubled. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may also, that you may be also. And you know the way, and you know the way to where I am going. Jesus speaks in a sort of a rhetorical sense. He's not really looking for a question, but there's a man named Thomas. I love Thomas because he asked the questions everybody else is afraid to ask. And as a result, got a horrible nickname known as Doubting Thomas. But I'm here to tell you that when you ask these questions, something awesome always happens. Jesus, when he's asked questions in a way that is respectful and reverent and in a way that doesn't question, uh, you know, like, like, who are you type of a thing, but, but honestly comes and says, you know what, I just struggle with this. He's there with an answer that blows us away. Here's what Jesus says. He says, you know, you know the way that I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? 
Jesus, we don't know where you're going, so how could we know how to get there? It's like saying to somebody, we're going to Florida. You know how to get there. And somebody who's never been to our country going, I don't, this is the first I've ever heard of Florida. I don't know where that's at. How do I even get there? How could I know how to get to a place I've never been to? Thomas says, Lord, you're going someplace. I don't even know where that is. How do we get to a place I've never been to before? And Jesus responds, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Jesus answers Thomas, not by ridiculing him, not by making fun of him, not by getting angry with him. And don't get me wrong, Jesus got angry at his disciples. We said this on Friday. There's times where Jesus is like, how long am I gonna have to put up with you guys? That, that sounds like a mom who's been in Walmart too long with kids that are too young to be there in the first place. That doesn't sound like the Jesus we keep seeing that's popular. That's Jesus at the bottom of a boat trying to take a nap and his disciples are like, it's storming. We're gonna die with the son of God on this boat. And he's like, gosh, how long am I gonna put up with you guys? And then he calms the storm and goes back to bed. But here, Jesus, for a man who's come and, and admits his folly, he admits, I, I don't know where you're going, Lord, and I don't know how to get there. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm going, I'm going to the Father, and that's where I'm taking you. And Jesus says, not only that, that you are going to that place, I am taking you there. Um, Velcro. You guys are familiar with Velcro, right? Velcro is an amazing thing. When I was a kid, when I was five years old, six years old, got my first pair of shoes that I was cognizant of. You know, there was a choice on my behalf. Velcro was the way to go. Because tying shoes, who's got time for that? You just strap those things on. And if you were really cool, you did them like an X. Like if you had two, two like that, you'd go one down, one up, so it looked like an X like real rebellious, you know, because you had an X on your rebellion, you know, your shoes, your Velcro shoes. And my mom, she was a genius. She would, she would gear me, she would steer me away from the more expensive shoes to the less expensive shoes and convince me that they made me faster. And I was like, are you serious? These make me faster? And uh, so she'd be like, yeah, try them on. And you know, kids aren't allowed to run in the store except for when they're testing out their new shoes. So I put on these Velcro bad boys seven dollar pair of shoes okay run whoa you're so fast and then, you know mom's not gonna lie to me okay wrap them up mom these are the shoes we're getting these xj 900s from kmart that's what i'm getting velcro an amazing invention amazing for shoes and all sorts of other things it's what i think of when i think about death death rips away from the body the soul like velcro being ripped away <laughs> Death separates the physical from the very nature of who we are as a person. It's unnatural. Death is not natural. I mean, it's natural in the sense that it happens to everybody, but that doesn't make it normal. That makes it constant. That makes it uh, equal, but it doesn't make it normal. The Bible speaks of death as this abnorm abnormality because it separates what God had put together. And Jesus, the, the way he describes this to us is that he's bringing that all back together. And, and we often struggle with getting back to God. We struggle with making things right. We struggle with our performance because we understand inside of us, there's this, there's this innate understanding and knowing that what, what we do is not enough. It falls short. Romans chapter three speaks to this, telling us that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. That in our own natural state, whether it be Jew or Gentile, male, female, married, single, black, white, young, old, no matter who it is and where they've come from, where they were born, they have fallen short of the glory of God. On Friday, we talked about a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus in John chapter three came to Jesus respectfully, reverently, called him rabbi, said things like, we know you must be from God because unless you're from God, you couldn't do the miracles that you're doing. 
Nicodemus was from the right family. Nicodemus was from the right organization. He belonged to the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. He grew up in the right manner. He was a Jew, probably observed every law that he possibly could. He was courageous. He was willing to, to sort of risk that in a sense to come meet Jesus, but he also did it in the dark of night so there'd be less chance of losing everything. So he's both in one sense courageous and cowardly. And he comes that way to Jesus and many of us come to Jesus like that. I reckon that Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the, the, the Messiah. Jesus is a good teacher. Good guy. Sounds like he really loved people, loved kids, loved going around teaching people, always said the right things. But knowing, that's knowing about Jesus. And knowing about Jesus is not the same as knowing him. In the same way, husbands, some people know your wife, but you know her differently. Ladies, some of your husbands, they're known in the community, but they, those people don't know them like you do. You have a relationship with them different than the rest of the world. The Bible speaks of our relationship with Jesus being like that of a marriage. There's an intimacy, there's a knowing, there's, a, there, there's this unveiling, this vulnerability between the two that is unparalleled in all, of, all other relationships. And we struggle with that relationship being held up by us. We've got to make sure that we, we cross the T's and dot the I's. We make the right offering. We go to church enough. We pray enough. And listen, as a pastor, I want you guys to be at church every moment that you can. On Wednesday nights here or Wednesday nights at the Kessler's here on Sundays when we have special events. When you guys aren't here, we miss you. I miss you. The rest of the church misses you. But we also understand that you coming to church consistently is not a checklist that gets you any closer to God in the sense that, oh, you know, Johnny, what's his name, came four times this month. All right, it was a five Sunday month. He skipped one Sunday. That's good. That's good. It's like 80% of the month he came to church. Good for him. We, we miss you and, and you do suffer in growing and in hearing the word of God. But it's not a checklist. It's not, it's not a thing that gets you any closer to God in, in that sense. Your relationship with God does require participation. You must be present. There are folks who, who truly believe because they made a confession of faith at 11, they, they today are saved. They live like the rest of the world, but they believe that they're saved. And the Bible teaches us whenever we see anybody saved, it completely changes their life. They don't go back to the old consistently. They might go back to their old ways uh, in, in a moment of weakness here and in a bad choice there. Peter's a great example of that. In Galatians, Paul says he had to call out Peter because Peter would act one way in front of the Gentiles, but then when the Jews showed up, he acted like he had nothing to do with them. He was being uh, 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 partial to the Jews. He didn't want to ruin his reputation with the Jewish folks, so he dissed himself from the Gentiles whenever that arose. Peter says, I'd, or Paul says, I'd call Peter out to his face because Peter wasn't perfect. Peter wasn't as great and as mighty of a man that he was for God. He wasn't God himself. Our relationship with Jesus requires participation, but all of the work to make that relationship solid is done by the Lord. Jesus says that when he comes back to take us to be with him, he'll do just that. He will come back to take us to himself. From the moment of our rebirth, being born again, as Jesus told Nicodemus, had to, had to happen for him to see the kingdom of God, until the moment we pass from this life to the next will be this series of refinements and sanctification. That's our fancy way. That's our really good spin. Uh, but it's also the biblical view of going through really hard times. If you followed a faith or if you followed a strain of belief that tells you that once you give your life to Jesus, nothing bad will happen to you, you've wandered into false doctrine. The Bible tells us that God uses suffering to refine us. God uses suffering to bring us closer to Jesus. Jesus suffered, so we will suffer as he did. Charles Spurgeon put it like this, better learn from suffering than to learn from sin. Suffering is essential for the Christian to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, to know more about him. 
not to needlessly go through suffering, to just circumstances, you know, just bad luck, just wrong place, wrong time. No, there, there is no bad luck. There are no circumstances. There are no wrong place at the wrong time. When things happen to you, the Lord has made allowance for that to happen in your life so that you might be matured. That's best put on display in the book of Job. Bible says Job was a righteous man, righteous, the most righteous of all the earth at the time. And Satan came before God to accuse him. Something I never get here, I never hear preached on is the fact that Satan went around the earth looking for somebody and never saw Job. God points out Job. Never heard anybody preach on that. I think, I think preachers or pastors are afraid of that verse because it breaks down a lot of what they believe about their God. But God says, have you considered my servant Job? Up until that moment, Satan hadn't seen him. And so from that moment on, Satan begins to say, well, you know, you've blessed Job. Of course he's going to love you. He's got the most money and a bunch of kids and a wife and land and servants. Who wouldn't love you? But God knew Job and gave permission to Satan. And I know this is blowing the th- the th- your, your mind right now, theologically speaking. Gave Satan permission to test Job. When we suffer, we might rightly blame Satan. Satan is doing this in my life. We might be trying to skirt the blame for our bad choices on him. That happens a lot. But Satan might be the one behind it, causing it, tormenting you. But as in the case with Job, it's to prove a point. It's to do something in you that no other circumstance can. See how the Lord takes even Satan's worst work and spins them to work on our behalf. He takes what Satan tries to do to us to destroy us only to build us up. Can you, do you understand why Satan's so incredibly frustrated? Because even the things he tries to do to destroy you get turned around, used for the good of the people going through them and glorifying the God that he hates. So, When Jesus dies and suffers on the cross, you can only imagine what great victory he must have thought he had until Jesus conquered the grave. Until these promises are being made that I will take you to myself. There is nobody who will stop Jesus from bringing you to him, not even you. Well, I've got to make the right choice. No, 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 you don't understand. If you have been considered amongst the elect from the beginning, predestined before the beginning of the earth. God has had his eyes on you since then. I can't even get my mind around that. That God knew before he created this this earth that Jesus would come and die for my sins, what I would do. That he would not be limited by my actions but that Jesus' actions would come and erase what I had done. As though those things never happened in the eyes of God. Now my sin might exist still in the eyes of people. And if I have sinned against people, if you've sinned against somebody, there's some, what's the word? Some repentance that needs to be done. Yes, our sins have been washed away before the eyes of God, but if we've hurt somebody and sin by its very nature usually hurts somebody, If you steal, you've hurt somebody. If you lie to them, you've hurt somebody. If you kill them, they don't usually end up in a good place after that, right? I mean, they end up dead. When you disrespect parents, when you worship other gods, and when you take the Lord's name in vain, where you you live one way contrary to the one you profess. Oh, I love Jesus. I just live like hell the rest of the week. These things as grave as they are, as bad as they are, they take a toll on yourself and somebody else. And so apologies need to be made. I don't want to feel guilty about my sin. God doesn't want you to feel condemned about your sin, but you shouldn't feel good about it. When I think back to the things that I've done, I don't feel good about those things. When I've raised my voice at people, when I've, when I've cheated people, when I've said the wrong things at the wrong time, when I've been disrespectful, when I've, when I've hated my brother, which Jesus equates with killing them, when I've, when I've just done vile things, I don't feel good about those things. 
but I rejoice knowing that God has done something greater than what I have done. Today, this day, Jesus being the first fruit of the resurrection, he's, he's the first one. The idea of first fruits, it's an Old Testament principle or, or command that God gave the Jewish people. It was when you see the first crops come up, the first ones you harvest, you give that back to God. It's this idea of trust. It's this idea that, okay, the rest of the crops are gonna come up and it's gonna be enough for me and my family. So I'm gonna give the first part to God. I'm gonna take it to the temple. The priests are gonna use it to eat and make bread and to survive and that sort of thing, to make atonement, to make sacrifice. But it's the first fruits. And then the rest, I'm trusting God will be enough for me and mine. The Bible says that Jesus is the first, not only the firstborn, but the first fruits. Meaning he's the, he's the promise. He's, he's the trust that we must have. Now, Jesus didn't just tell us, believe in me that, that, that you'll one day be born again, that you'll live eternally. We get to watch him through the scriptures do just that. To die, lay down his life, take it back up again so that one day he might return and bring us back to him. Today's message is about burden lifting. It's about liberation. It's about being made right with God, but not by our actions, but by by what he has done for us. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. I've heard some bad theology from this section about Jesus making very big mansions and big elaborate places for you to live as though heaven's not good enough for us right now in the state that is in us, as though heaven's in disrepair and God's gotta go make, he's gotta go tidy up for us. You ever have to do the flight of the bumblebee in your house? Somebody's coming over unannounced. You're like, oh my gosh, there's dishes in the sink and the kids got their toys everywhere. You just start running around to, to get it ready for your company. <laughs> Somebody said, that's my mother. Was that Mike? Yeah. Oh, it was Matt. Or Matt, okay. Matt's mom, if you're watching, that was him. Um, <laughs> um, we treat Jesus like that. Like, oh, he's got to go, he's got to go prepare a place for us because heaven's untidy. He's got to make it nice for us. Or he's got to go build us a mansion because, uh, because heaven's just not good enough in the state that it's, it's good enough for God, but not us. It's good enough for Jesus and his throne and all that, but he's got to make it look good for us. No, the Bible says he goes to prepare a place for us so he might take us to him. Take him, that place that's being prepared is himself. Jesus said in, 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 chapter 14, I will return to take you to myself. Where Jesus is, is where heaven is. Where Jesus is, is where we will be. Let not your hearts be troubled. Why? I find this law at work in the Bible that when God gives us a command to do something, it's because the opposite is usually true. If we did not have the propensity or the proclivity to sin, there would be no commands against sinning. If we, were not, if we did not have the tendency to let our hearts be troubled, Jesus would be wasting his words right now. But we are weak, frail human beings outside of Jesus and we need him to remind us, we need him to tell us to not let our hearts be troubled, to not let them be agitated, to not let them be scared by what we do not see. I don't know about you, but there are times where my heart is troubled. My heart's troubled by what I see happening in Syria and in Russia. My heart is troubled by the sex trade and and kids being kidnapped and sold into slavery so that gross men and women can make a profit off of their bodies. I'm troubled by the corruption I see in politics. I'm I'm troubled by the future that I, I see in the natural for my children and for my family. I'm troubled when someone in the church goes to the hospital. I'm troubled when when there's not enough money in the bank, I'm troubled when any number of things happens. I'm troubled when I begin to doubt Jesus. Is this really what he's saying? Is this really what's going to, am I following him as he's saying to be followed or am I making this up in my head? Am I adding to the word? Am I taking away from it? And I need Jesus to tell me to not let my heart be troubled, my soul, the very seed of who I am. You know, the mind goes back and forth. I mean, the, is your mind like mine? Where like one minute you're like, woohoo, and the next one you're like, oh no. 
but the heart is usually like the stabilizer of it. I don't know what we're gonna do, but I have faith. But when the heart goes, the mind doesn't help the heart. The heart's like, oh no. The mind's like, right? See what I've been saying? And so our mind's important. Don't discount that at all, but, but it's, it's the heart of who we are that Jesus gets to. I find that Satan tries to attack us from the outside to get into there, and Jesus, Jesus goes there to fight from the inside out. First Corinthians 15 and 50, big chapter says, I tell you this brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. See, the Bible doesn't say that Jesus is going to make, the, uh, going to make heaven more palatable for us, meaning we're sinners by nature, so he's gotta go make it available and ready for sinners. No, no, no. He's not gonna change heaven to suit us. He's gonna change us to be ready for heaven. When you read the book of Revelation, it's a glorious place. And when I say glorious, I don't mean, oh, because there's streets paved with gold and there's a fountain of living water and because it's a place where it says Jesus is our God and we are his people. There's this connection unlike anything we've experienced. That everything we experience now, as, as, as grand as it might be, it pales in comparison to that day when we meet Jesus face to face. I read in a novelization of the book of Revelation once. So this is speculation. This is not, this is, this is man's idea of heaven. But there was this moment where the char- this character went to heaven, went to go be with Jesus and, and, and was in Jesus's arms and he, and he says that he rested and he doesn't know how long it was, but he was just satisfied to be in the arms of his savior. I don't know that that will happen, but I'm telling you, I'm looking forward to something like that. A moment where all guard is let down. Even if we're the most vulnerable person, we're always looking to protect ourselves. We're always looking to, we're always looking to, to make sure nobody gets the best of us. And so we're guarded. And those moments where you can truly let go are few and far between. But this moment, this moment where we go to be with Jesus, all guard will be let go. All, all facades, all masks, all shields will be laid down because we will be his people and he will be our God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the destination, the path, the purpose, and the reason for all of us who believe. So what do we do? We do what John the Baptist said and what his younger cousin Jesus said as well. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Church, God's grace that's been extended through the cross of Christ demands a response. Some whose hearts are hardened will turn away from the cross. They today, they're celebrating their faith that hopefully none of this is true. That they've made a choice and they haven't made a wrong choice. And they might snub their nose at us and mock us, but they've made their choice. The response to the cross has been made hopefully only temporarily. And then there are some who who have, they keep trying to come to Jesus religiously. I'll go to church on Easter and Christmas, you know, I'll dress up, you know, I'll stand when they tell me to stand, I'll raise my hands, I'll sing the song and I'll be good for six months. I'll, come, I'll be reverent to Jesus. You know, I won't take his name in vain. I'll try to give more. But, you know, honestly, if Jesus could just leave me alone until I need him, that'd be really great. And then there's others who, like the man in the parable, the, the tax collector who beat his chest and couldn't even come to Jesus or come to the Lord. I'm just a sinner. I, I'm not worthy. You know, the one that Jesus said is the one that's lifted up by God. You know, we come to God in different ways, but Jesus is the way. Jesus is the purpose, the plan, the path, the destination. He's the journey. He's all of it. And our response to grace must be repentance. Repentance of what? Oh, I don't know. You know me. You know you better than me. What is, what is your flavor of sin? What is it that you do 
you know, think about when you're pressured, where do you go? Do you go to food? Do you go to sex? Do you go to drugs? Do you go to anger? Do you go to a place of numbness? You just don't feel anything? Do you run to a functional savior? A friend, a relative who's more spiritual than you? you just pray, pray for me so this goes away. Where do you go when the pressure increases? That will tell you who your savior is. Do you run to Christ? Do you go to his word? Do you go to prayer? Do you go to his people and say, this is what I'm going through? Can we pray together? Repentance is running in one direction and doing a 180 back to Jesus. For those who are in Christ Jesus, the book of Romans says in Romans chapter eight, verse one, there's no condemnation for you anymore. The Bible speaks of that condemnation being like a guillotine hanging over your head. All of us rightly deserving it, but Jesus has stepped in our place to take God's wrath. So now we are forgiven. The cross is now our cross. The nails that were pierced there, the hands that were pierced, that should have been our hands were Jesus's, but now we've been changed by what he's done. Our hope is no longer in what we can do, but in everything that Jesus has done. Today we rejoice because of what Paul says to the Romans in chapter eight, that nothing can separate us now from the love of Christ. And people like to put in there, but except for you. No, that's not what the Bible says. Height nor depth, life, death, any created thing can't separate it from the love of Christ that is in, excuse me, from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. His grip on you is not dependent on you. I love that. I love that. Uh, Sarah's grandfather passed away this week and I was uh, privileged to be a pallbearer. Anybody here ever been a pallbearer? One of the scariest things ever. Why? Because what if you drop it? Right? Now maybe you guys don't think like I do, but here's what I'm thinking. If I drop this thing, it does not end well for me. <laughs> and so, so, so my grip now is like a death grip. I'm not letting this thing go. If this thing falls, it's not gonna be my fault. Let this thing fall on top of me before anything else. And so the grip is, it's all up to you. Maybe you've, maybe you've held a baby. I dropped Ethan once. Just put that right out there. When he was first born, I didn't drop him all the way. There's a good ending to the story. Um, when he was first born, he wouldn't sleep in his crib. And the only place he wanted to sleep was in my arms. It was the greatest thing ever. If I think of all the gifts that God has ever given me, top three behind my children and my wife. Well, on salvation, so top four. He would only sleep in my arms. So I had a recliner in our bedroom and I would sleep there with him. And one night, I'm sleeping, he's sleeping. And I'm awakened by the feeling that he's rolling down my legs. And so I'm gonna, just for, for uh, illustration purposes. So I'm sitting there in the recliner like this. I got him. And he starts to roll. And I woke up and I went, doosh. And I caught him right here. And Sarah's asleep in the bed next to us. And I shot a look at her. She didn't wake up. He didn't cry. <laughs> Go back to sleep. <laughs> now, Ethan's grip, unfortunately, in that scenario, was not dependent on him. It was dependent on me and my cat-like reflexes. But have you ever had a baby hold on to you as though their grip is the one that's dependent? Like they, they have to hold on to you for dear life, but you know, you're not gonna drop them. Their, their safety is in your arms, not theirs. It's the same lesson we're taught through the scriptures. God's grip upon you is not dependent on how much you can hold on to him. It's dependent on how strong his hold is. It's why Jesus says things like, God has given you to me and I'll never let you go. Is there a part for you to play? Sure. You gotta love your neighbor. You gotta serve others. You gotta love God above all of the things. You have to put your faith that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. He has died for your sins. You should go out and live that in the midst of the community that you are in.
that you should be a part of God's glorious body called the church and connect with that and be in community with that. But all the things that keep you close to God have been done by him. So that one day he might return to us and take us to be with him. And that day, friends, will be the day that all these other things end. We might have trial and tribulation until that day, but when that day comes, all things will be made new. He will be our God. We will be his people. He will be seen as he is to be seen. And you'll look, if you can even look back on this life, you'll, 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 it will pale in comparison. You, you'll wonder why you fretted. You wonder why you ran so scared because you will realize your faith fully. And so today, your part in this is repentance. Where are you at? What, what, is, what has entrapped you? What has ensnared you? What, what have you stumbled back into? Or what new thing have you stumbled into? Well, let's pray together. Let me pray for you. Let, let's pray for ourselves. The Bible tells us to confess our sins. I encourage you that if you are caught in some type of sin, especially secret sin, confess it to somebody. You don't have to stand up in front of the whole church and tell the whole church, this is what I do or what I've done. But find somebody you trust. And talk. there is something incredibly freeing about being able to just speak bluntly and say, this is what I have done and I need help. There's great healing, the Bible says, to be found in that. Sometimes even healing from physical pain and ailments. In the confession of our sins, James says. If you, if you wanted to tell the church your sin, that's fine too. You're not limited by that or expected to do that. It's really your choice. But right now, identify those things in your mind that keep pulling you away from Jesus. Maybe it's laziness. We don't consider that a sin. Some of us aren't very prolific at physical laziness. We, we don't do that, but we're spiritually lazy. I'll read my Bible tomorrow. I'll pray later. Oh, I'll, I'll go to church next week. Oh, here comes that person from church. I'm going the other way. You know, stuff like that. We're spiritually lazy. So what do we do? We repent of that. Okay, I'm gonna go home. I'm gonna read my Bible. I'm gonna read my Bible. Not for X amount of chapters or X amount of time. I'm just gonna read until God gets a hold of me. I was reading Jeremiah the other day. Anybody ever read the book Jeremiah? And the first eight chapters, and I ask, don't say this to be crass because it's the word of the Lord. He calls Israel a whore. And that's the word that's being used in the Bible like 19 times. And I was like, how did I miss this the last time I went through Jeremiah? Why is he talking? Oh my God, I gotta keep reading. My goodness. The Bible's, there's a story in the Bible of a man who's assassinated, a king who's assassinated in Israel. And it says that he was such a large man that the man who stabbed him with a sword, his whole arm went in. That, that's better than most television. That story is like, what? And some people are like, the Bible's boring. Are you reading the right parts? Because stories like this, they intrigue me and they're not told to just be sensationalistic. They tell us the history of the people that God chose to produce the Messiah. And we're so often thinking we have to be perfect and, and Jesus produced in perfection came as a result of a lot of sinful people. It says that Rahab, the prostitute that saved the spies in, in the book of Exodus, or excuse me, the book of Joshua, that she's part of the lineage of Jesus. Great, 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 great grandmother. God is not scared of who you are or where you've been or what you've done. He loves you. And so today, accept that offer of grace and repent. Confess that Jesus is the son of God, the, the savior of your soul. The Bible says that you will be saved. None will be turned to shame. None will be turned away. Anyone who comes in that manner will be saved. Stand with me this morning and let's pray together. And maybe today your biggest prayer is not to be saved. You're not even thinking about that. You're thinking about some physical thing or some financial thing. And those are things we need to pray for too. Don't get me wrong. But they take a distant backseat to this right here. And honestly, if this part gets right, you begin to look at these other troubles and go, oh, wait a minute. 
God's in control. And these things will be used for my good. They're still bad and they're gonna hurt. But what somebody, whether it be Satan or the world or, or even our own flesh, wants for evil, God will use for good. So I wanna pray for you. Jesus, we are so thankful for the cross today. We are thankful that the cross is not an empty promise, but it is indeed a, a down payment or deposit on what you are going to do, what you are doing now. You have prepared a place for us. We now have a place with you when you return. We echo the words of the book of Revelation that you, Lord, would come quickly. We often joke here at the chapel, Lord, that if you, if you should come back today, that'd be okay with us. We have no plans so grand or so big that we would put off your return. When we read about your return, it's this magnificent, glorious, triumphant re-entry into our reality, Lord. And here you promise us that you will take us to yourself. Today, some of us, Lord, we are on the other side of that line. We, we are still in the enemy's camp, so to speak. We have not given our life to you. We've come like Nicodemus. We've been respectful and we've understood that you're there, but we've never called on your name for salvation. We've never called on you to save us from our sin and what we've done. We maybe have never even seen our sin as sin. We've just seen it as life and things we have to do. But Lord, I'm praying that your Holy Spirit through your grace would bring that conviction to show us how desperately we need you. And I pray, Lord, that today that moment of desperation would be but a moment because you're a God who takes our desperate situations and turns them around so that we're no longer just sinners in need of saving. We're now saints of God. We're now children of God, adopted into your family. We are brand new creations. That place that you've gone to prepare is our place too. Not, by, not because we're so good or we've done all the right things, but because you are so good and you've done all the right things. And Lord, some of us, we're going through some trials right now that we've, we've never experienced before. Things that hurt more, lasting longer. They're not the result. I mean, some are the result of our sinful choices, but some are just, we were just living life and something came out of nowhere. We are confident, Lord, that these things did not just come out of nowhere. These are things that you are using to make us more like you. So today, Lord, I pray for your people. I pray for all of us that our eyes be so fixed on you that we would see everything else through you, through the lens of who you are. That every circumstance, every trial, every triumph would be a cause for rejoice in you. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you bore the cross, you hung on the cross, and you conquered the cross, all without our help. That while we were still weak, you died for us. You are the Son of God. You are our Savior, and we love you. May you be glorified not only today, but every day for the rest of our lives in Jesus' name, amen.